0: Today's reading is going to be from Psalm 19, beginning with the seventh verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Some of you may know that One of my spiritual heroes and kind of the C.S. Lewis of our generation, Tim Keller, passed away on Friday from pancreatic cancer. So this morning, as we go through this series of questioning Christianity, I wanted to begin with a quote from him that just gets you thinking about this topic of morality. He says this, Is there anyone in the world right now doing things you believe they should stop doing, no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior. And what this question is getting at, if you would say, yes, these people in this culture or maybe even our own culture practice this or do this, or I think they're like guilty of this, what you're saying is you believe in objective morality. That is that there is a standard outside of ourselves that we are all held up to, that it's an absolute for everyone, everywhere. It's a universal. So, this morning, as we talk about morality from scripture, we're gonna look at the source of morality, the essence of morality, the foundation of morality, and the implications of morality. So, by source of morality, I mean where did morality come from? As an idea, as a concept, Is it just a social construct? Is it something that the divine gave to us? Where did this come from? And as we've done, I want us to look at a couple different theories of where this came from. And by the way, had a great question throughout the different weeks of like, why are you spending so much time giving us the wrong answers and not just telling us what Scripture says? And my short answer to that is we have a new blog post up on our website. You can go to resources and scroll down past the messages. And there's like a four-page answer there of why we are taking this much time and energy to kind of show in contrast to the word of God, the gospel, here's what many of our neighbors believe. And we're talking about it not to make fun of them, not to say that they're stupid, not to say that they're immoral or bad people. We're saying... These are just different views and where do those views logically lead and we can compare them in a way that i think is even-handed is humble and is fair okay so where did morality come from and here's a couple different theories from the theory of evolutionary natural selection it goes like this humans who were good and kind and altruistic and patient and we could list off these different qualities that we recognize as good we would say they were more likely to survive because of these good traits, and therefore that, that those traits that we wouldn't even think of morality at the, at the time got imprinted in the genetic code because these are the people that are reproducing. According to this theory, our sense of right and wrong became embedded in our biology because right worked better and helped us survive and be healthier than wrong. Um, interestingly enough, the biggest critics of this theory, other than Christians, are, are you ready for it? They're naturalistic evolutionists okay so richard dawkins one of the premier writers scientists around evolutionary biology wrote this famous work entitled the selfish gene and he argues that if there's one trait that's imprinted in human dna it is selfishness i mean remember this is survival of the fittest This is dog-eat-dog. This is every man for himself. And so other biologists now, other evolutionists, look at this and say, well, it's not really every man for himself because we've learned this group evolution where we realize if my selfishness is directed toward the preservation of my kin or my people, my tribe, that we together, even if I'm sacrificing my life, like in war or something, I'm preserving the genetic code of my family, which can then be passed on. Again, Tim Keller says this. For the sake of argument, let's just say that loving, altruistic behavior helped our ancestors survive, and so the brain chemistry that makes us feel that that is good behavior to do is with us today. Does the fact that this behavior was practical in the past constitute a moral obligation, not just a feeling, that we must do it now? And he says, of course not. See, even if it's true that our genes tell us to play nice, to be kind, to be patient, to be loving, that is not the basis for morality. Biology cannot impose a moral obligation. In philosophy, this is called Hume's Law. And the idea is if all you have are factual non-moral statements from science, you cannot from those factual non-moral statements derive or infer morality. It's called the is-ought problem because it's like this, it's just, just because something is, does not mean you ought to do anything about that. So science can say this is true, but it cannot say you ought to do anything. It can only describe what is. So if morality doesn't come from our nature, like our genetic code, others propose, and most people propose, it mainly comes from nurture instead of nature. So you have a couple different theories here, and I'm just going to mention two popular ones. One is called relativism. And you have cultural relativism, and you have more personal or individual relativism. And if you don't know, the idea of relativism is there is no objective, overriding, absolute standard for us to abide by. Instead, morality comes from either the prevailing views of culture, like everyone just knows this is true now, or from the individual just saying, I have the right to determine right and wrong for me. And by the way, if you travel at all, or if you're simply aware of other cultures, you know that this is in a sense true, that you travel halfway around the world and what people over there, wherever over there is, would say the unpardonable sins of our culture are very different than the unpardonable sins of Western progressive culture like Denver. They're almost complete opposites, okay? What's considered right one place is considered wrong here. What's considered wrong here is right over there and vice versa, okay? So the standards shift from place to place, but also you note that the standards shift from time to time. Like what we believe as a society right now is very different than what society believed even 10 years ago, let alone 50 or 100 or 500 years ago, this shifts over time. So everyone says, like, see the relativism, there's no standard. Taken to an extreme, it sounds something like this. This is from the writings of Christian Smith. I don't know that people like terrorists, what, what do they do? It's not wrong to them. They're doing the thing they think is the best thing they could possibly do, and so they're doing good. I had this discussion with a friend recently and she's like, but they're still murdering tons of people. That just has to be wrong. And I was like, but do we have any idea if it's actually wrong to murder tons of people? Like, what does that even mean? So you could say that the people who are terrorists are born into cultures where it is taught that it's all right and necessary and really important for them to kill a bunch of people. And we get our backs up because we are, you know, we are far more enlightened than that. But that is cultural or personal individual relativism. How can anyone say that anything that another individual is doing is wrong if there is no standard to which all of us are held that is an objective standard? And to try to say that they're wrong if we're relativists, this is either like chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis's term, like, oh, we just all know better now. They were so stupid back then. Or it's cultural imperialism. It's ethical imperialism where we're like, we know what's right as Americans, so we need to go make the rest of the world agree with us. Is that where morality came from? A third idea is that morality is just a self-evident reality. And I would suggest that this is the most common view in our culture today because most conversations I get into with, with whoever about ethics and morality I realize people don't spend much or any time thinking about why something is right or wrong. They would just say, it's obvious. Like everyone knows that certain actions are wrong, certain actions are right. Arthur Leff describes this viewpoint when he says, as it stands now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil altogether. Now says who? God help us. Do you hear what he's saying? Like we just know that like dropping bombs on babies and killing innocent people and not standing up for the poor. We all just know that that's wrong. Says who? Well, I don't know. We all just know that human rights exist. Few people can defend why they believe, what they believe about good and evil. They just say it's obvious. Again, accept that it isn't. Again, travel to another place or another time and there is no consistent standard across cultures or across time about what's even been self-evident. What's obvious to you is not obvious to people 10, 100, 1,000 years ago. What's obvious to you is not obvious to people in Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria, Argentina, or Azerbaijan. So we come to a fourth view, and that is that the source of morality is an eternally good God. And the Bible plainly teaches that morality... The definition of right and wrong are actually rooted in the character of God. They are grounded in his nature. And not only does the Bible explicitly state that, but I think this is one of the most presumed or assumed truths throughout the Bible. So you go to Genesis 1 and 2. God is already eternally existing as God. He is the sole creator of everything else that exists. He gives everything else life. He gives everything its nature. He gives everything its identity. He gives everything its purpose. And he, at the beginning of creation, go to Genesis 1, he looks at what he's made and he makes a moral evaluation of it. He says, this is very good. God's first command to humans is incredibly positive and life giving. It comes in Genesis 128, God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I want you to notice something very important, not just gloss over that. From the start, God's commands are not arbitrary. He's not sitting in heaven like, Man, what do I tell people to do? I've been thinking about this for a billion years. Um I'll just say do this. Rather, his commands are the overflow or the reflection of his own character. So when he says to the first humans, be fruitful and multiply, he's talking about flourishing. He's talking about love. He's talking about having dominion, which is to steward creation in a way that causes other people and things to flourish. And what you're hearing in the very first command of scripture is not some arbitrary, just like, "Eh, I'll tell people to do this. Rather, you see in God's will the overflow of God's character. Going on, God's next command in Scripture is the first and only prohibition that the first man and woman had. Get that? Of all the things, God's like, you can do anything and everything you want because your nature is good and holy and right. It's like mine. But don't, don't what? It's in Genesis 2:16 and 17. He says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now what God is saying there is critically important. So hear this. This helps us understand morality. God says, the tree of knowledge. Of what? Of good and evil. Don't eat it. What God is saying is, you find the knowledge of good and evil in relationship with me. You don't go off on your own and determine what's good or what's evil On your own you don't get it from a fruit you don't get it from your own mind okay and that's incredible we do you know we were never meant to know evil how do we know that because evil was kind of like personified or embodied in that tree and god says don't touch it you were never meant to know evil but you were also this is incredible you were also never meant to know good apart from relationship with god So God is saying, I define the standard for you, and in obeying me, you will have life and prosperity and flourishing and love and kindness and only good forever. Do not try to define good and evil for yourself, because if you do, that leads to death. So that is the source of morality, a good God. The essence of morality, in other words, how do we decide what's right and wrong? I just want to fly through a couple things. Number one, the harm principle. This is very familiar from those who read philosophy. John Stuart Mill, Jeremy Bentham would say basically, live and let live. Self-determination. Like you it's kind of cultural relativism or personal relativism. Like you decide right and wrong for yourself, but where have you crossed the line? It's the whole thing of like, I'm welcome to swing my fist any old day I want, anywhere, anytime, as hard as I want to, but that stops where? It stops where your face starts. Okay? The harm principle. Do no harm. Live as you want, but do no harm to others. A second view is utilitarianism. And if you love philosophy, you know I'm just like touching on the very top of these. Feel free to go deeper. Feel free to ask questions. Not right now, but later, okay? <laughs> um, utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill, Peter Singer. The idea is greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. So you are free to do whatever you want. We as a culture are free to do whatever we want so long as it promotes happiness is the basic idea. A third view, emotivism. This is what I feel is right, is right. This is a lot of our culture. Why why do you do that? Why do you believe that that's right and this other thing is wrong? I I just feel it. Like No one can determine my truth for me. It's my truth. I mean, this is Elsa again, right? Like no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's emotivism. Thank you, Elsa. You said it so beautifully, you know. Um, Carl Truman also says it well in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says, Human beings may still like to think they believe in good and bad, but these concepts are unhitched from any transcendent framework and merely reflect personal, emotional, and psychological preferences. In practice, it is we who decide our own preferred ends and shape our ethics to that purpose. That's emotivism. A fourth view is liberalism. This is, again, a huge one in our culture today, which says something like this. Maximum freedom for everyone is the maximum good. Just set people free. We know we have our rights. We have our bodies. You just release people to go and be free and do basically whatever they want. And in liberalism, essentially, the only sin is intolerance. Is bigotry. It's telling someone else that they're wrong. So it looks like this. Use your sexuality and gender however you want. That's good. Abortion is good. Activism is good. Rioting and vandalism are good. Why? Because they're expressions of freedom. They're letting you get your angst out. Christianity is a straitjacket. Because you got this book that tells people, well, you, you can't do stuff like that. That's not good, that's not healthy, that's not helping you, that's not contributing to the benefit of others. So in liberalism, Christianity feels like this very constricting relic of the past, but that's liberalism. Uh, One more kind of bad one, this is neo-Marxism, also a big one in our culture today. It's the idea that oppressors, oppression, wealth, power, privilege, they're inherently bad. So if you have any of those things, you're bad. And if you are a victim of those things or you're, you're marginalized, you're poor, you're oppressed, that's inherently good. It leads to ideas around critical race theory, intersectionality. Again, I can barely touch on this, but intersectionality is just categorizing people by race, class, gender, politics, social status, economic status, religion, creed, and then assigning inherent goodness to perceived victims in those different groups, or the perceived oppressed or the perceived marginalized. So if you're a minority, you get bonus points. If you're marginalized, you get bonus points. If you're majority culture, or you at least look like you're the oppressor, that's bad. But neo-Marxism is just like automatically categorizing people and saying, this category is wrong and bad. This category is right and good. Again, we're talking about the essence of morality and we come to what the Bible says, the essence of morality. This is what I believe. This is what most of you believe is whatever conforms to God's character and will. So just at the foundation level, if God is God, he gets to define what's right and what's wrong. But I want to continue to stress to you that God's moral standards, his definition of righteousness, it's not arbitrary. And we understand God says rape is wrong, murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, idolatry is wrong. And the question comes up, but could he have said they're good? Because he's God. So what if God said oppression is good, abuse is good? And, it, and it's a ridiculous question theologically because the answer is no, God could not have said that those things are good because these definitions aren't just like up for grabs. Again, God's law, because he is holy, because he is eternally righteous and good, and his law is an overflow of his character, there is no impurity, there is no crookedness in his law, in his commands. Psalm 119, says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Why are his rules right rules? Because A, he's God, and because B, he is eternally righteous in himself. And if his commands, if his law are an overflow or a reflection of his character, then his law is only good, family. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 7, verse 12. He says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because God is holy and righteous and good. And I forgot to bring this here this morning, but you all know like what a construction level is, like a long rod, various lengths, and it has a bubble filled with fluid. And when you get that bubble like right in the middle, like your that picture you're about to hang on the wall like should be level. And I think of it like this: like God's standard is a level. And you're like, well, could he have put the bubble over here? And it's like, well, well, no, because by nature and according to the laws of the way God designed it and just the way our world works, when the thing is level, the bubble's in the middle. So so God can't monkey with that and be like, well, let's put the bubble over here and just like hang everything crooked. And I'll call that straight. Like by definition, a level is level because that bubble seeks to be in the middle. Okay. That is the essence of morality is that God doesn't leave us guessing what's right, what's wrong. He reveals himself. He gives us his moral law. If you want to know how to live, know that book in your hands, or at least that thing that you're scrolling through on your iPhone, hopefully, what you're scrolling through right now. Know the word of God. (laughs) Know the word of God because he's saying, here's the way, walk in it. This is life. This points you to the character of God. Now, third main point is the foundation of morality. And here's what I mean by this. What is morality based on? Or how could we possibly know what is right, what is wrong? What's the right standard? Because I've just gone through a bunch. What's the right standard? Is it the harm principle? Do no harm? Is it maximize happiness? Is it maximize freedom? Is it don't ever judge anyone? Is it side with perceived victims against perceived oppressors? There's a couple problems or a couple questions that thoughtful people are having here, right? It's like, well... Number one, who's right? Who's right? Who's wrong? These models are contradictory, so they can't all be right. I mean, by definition, many, many people think that they are right and they are completely wrong, and I mean about the very nature and essence of morality. That's a problem. That's a question. Um, Another big question is, once you've decided on a model, who gets to define the terms? So take the harm principle, which, which I largely agree with. I think it's good. Like, don't harm someone else. We're for that as Christians, right? Don't harm other people. But take any issue in our culture today and be like, okay, don't do harm. So abortion. Are you harming someone when you say don't get rid of that unwanted child? Or are you harming someone by getting rid of that unwanted child? Who's doing the harm? Or something as simple as identity, which we talked about a couple weeks ago who's doing the harm here? The person who says you can be anyone or anything you want to be, including someone who is living opposite of your biology or is the, the person doing harm who says you are who God says in the Bible you are? You see, it's not that easy to just say do no harm. And I say sure, maximize happiness and minimize pain, that's great, like I'm, I'm for that. The Bible's filled with pleasure the things that God invented for our pleasure, it's, it's mind blowing. But, but doesn't your definition of happiness change as you mature? Do you ever look back on things that you did as a previous iteration of yourself and be like, that was really stupid? Like, and, and it made me really happy, but it was unhealthy. Okay, like if I set my boys free for themselves, I don't, I don't know. Like, we had a big ice cream party for our kids' school, and Marty got all these toppings. And one of these toppings you can get at Costco now is like these big pouches of Lucky Charms marshmallows, like just the marshmallows. And my boys, if, if it was like, hey, guys, like, just find breakfast. We're going to get ready for our day. Like, I would fight, come out and just find them, like, stuffing their faces with just bowls full of marshmallows and, and then vomiting the rainbow in the kitchen, okay? So happiness, sure. But do you look back and see that happiness is not an ultimate standard, And I look at oppressed and oppressor, victim, perpetrator, discrimination. I think there's slipperier terms, there's more gray, there's more nuance, as the daily news proves out. So it's hard to determine who has the right foundation for morality that all the rest of us are supposed to follow. Because if naturalistic evolution is correct, we are here by complete accident. So how can anyone possibly argue that anything is right or wrong? Zachary Broom says, How can a purposeless, non moral process produce a moral basis for life? It can't. It doesn't. So the moral relativist pops in and how can you say anything is right or wrong? Like going back to that sick quote about napalming, how can you say that anything is wrong? That's what the person that looks at the terrorist and says, Well, that's not wrong for them. Who's to say that murdering a bunch of people is wrong? I don't want that as a basis for morality. So my question is, what do we need to know to determine the right basis or foundation of morality? We need to know our identity and our purpose. A couple weeks ago, I had up here, or maybe last week, I had an iPhone and a hammer. You know that it would be bad. Like maybe even morally bad because it's so incredibly wasteful to take my iPhone and to use it to drive nails. It would destroy the iPhone. That is not the purpose of the iPhone. You can't drive nails. You can't drive a golf ball. You you can't drive a manual transmission with an iPhone. It wasn't designed for that. That's not good. So my question is, what is the logical foundation for morality if we are the product of blind chance? Because please hear me. I'm not saying that non-Christians or secularists or atheists, I'm not saying they're bad people in the sense of like those are the immoral people to avoid, we Christians are the good people. I'm not saying that. We know many, many people who are way better than their worldview would say they should be or, or even could be. And my argument would be that's because whether they believe in God or not, they were fashioned in God's image. They have a conscience that intuitively knows the difference between a lot of right and a lot of wrong. But what's the logical foundation for morality? And by the way, this is the argument that led C.S. Lewis to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, why, Why are you wasting time with this? Because there's someone else sitting in here. There's someone else listening that's wrestling with, how do I know that Christianity is true? Part of the answer is because it's beautiful, because it works in real life. Because when no other worldview can answer this question of like, how can you say that anything is right or wrong, the Bible works. See, the Bible tells us our identity and our purpose. It says you were made in the image of God. It says you were made to, as we saw last week, you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if I know just even that basic identity and that basic purpose, and I know I'm not an animal, I'm not a machine, I'm an image bearer of a holy and loving God, now I look at scripture and I'm like, here are positive commands that tell me things that I can practice that help me live into my purpose. Here are things like prohibitions, negative things, like don't do this, don't practice this. And again, that's not an arbitrary God just being like, this is the no fun zone. Don't go there because I want you to have a miserable life. God is doing the exact opposite. He's saying, because I have the instruction manual for your life, I made you I fashioned you. I know how you work. I know how this world works. So know the character of God. Know his word. And then here's what you can do. You can exercise discernment. Or as Jesus himself said, you can judge right judgment. Discernment's good, folks. I know our culture says it's bad even to make a determination that certain things are wrong or right, but we use the word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we can discern. Next, we can define what's harmful. We can define it because now we know, if I was made for this, then what things stand in the way of that or protrude into that or or undermine the foundations of that, and that is harm. Other things are good. We can put in perspective healthy versus unhealthy happiness. Like, God wants you to be crazy happy. He wants you to be crazy satisfied and fulfilled ultimately in him. But he's, again, he's filled his world with good things. And now we can look at, like, this happiness is, is this godly happiness. Where does this happiness lead versus this happiness? And we can, again, we can discern healthy versus unhealthy pursuits of happiness, we can recognize proper restraints to our freedom because the best freedom is not absolute unlimited freedom to do whatever I want. Like it's the right restrictions that lead to health and to flourishing. And we can see there's no such thing as my truth. There's truth. There's a level, but you can't hold your level like this and be like, well, that's that's my level. Well, it's not level. Your level's not level. Let God change you so that your level is level. And that brings us all to this, and I close with the implications of morality, because this is true. Because there is a God, an eternal God, who is good and righteous and clean and joyful and peaceful and patient and forgiving. And we could go on and on heaping up his attributes because that's true, first of all, trust and obey God. I, and I know that's an incredibly simple principle, but you've you got to hear that first word, trust and obey. Because you know the more you trust someone, and I just mean another person in relationship, the more you trust them, can't they ask you to do almost anything? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that's crazy because it's like, what what if that's a terrible person and they're asking you something to manipulate you? But God will never manipulate you. God will never lead you in a way that's actually gonna steal your freedom, steal your joy, steal your eternal life. So trust him. Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33, listen to this. This is Moses writing. Uh, Be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you possess." And, and again, I hope you hear the heart of God overflowing in these words. He's not like, I've created these restrictions because I just want you to be different and kind of miserable, but stand out like a, like a sore thumb amidst all these other quotes. He's like, no, do not turn this way. Do not turn this way. Do all, do the whole thing, the hard parts, and you will live and you will flourish and actually, other cultures will look at you, and I believe we'll look at the church today and be like, how are they so joyful? How are they so at rest in the midst of what's going on in our culture? How is it that they have the absolute standards that cause them to overflow with love toward everyone, kindness toward everyone, patience with everyone, grace, mercy toward everyone? And I come to an important question. When I say trust and obey God, you say, well, what if in my own judgment, the Bible's just off? It says some really regressive things that I don't believe, especially around hot topics today We're like, well, I, I disagree. And some of you know, like when I just stand here and read a verse from up here, people leave. And like Matt said, no, thus saith the Lord. God said, what do you do with those parts of Scripture when you bump into them? And I bump into them where I'm like, I don't like that. I wouldn't have said that that way. And I say, first of all, trust God. He made you according to his plan. He wrote your owner's manual. He wants only good for you. In the Garden of Eden, when he's like, do not try to determine right and wrong for yourself. It's because he loved them. And he loves us. Trust and obey God. Trust and obey when it makes perfect sense and when it doesn't. Trust and obey when you agree and when you disagree. By the way, I I say this all the time, but when you obey and you agree, that's not obedience. It's just like, I, I agree. When you're like, that rubs me the wrong way. I don't know what to do with this but I know God and I'm going to trust God's heart and I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to have hard conversations, but, but kind conversations when things are culturally unthinkable, but the Bible says I want to trust and obey God. Secondly, live a life of confession. And this is so important because the more you love God's law, like the psalmist says, it's not just like here's your law, I'll try to do it. He's like, I love your law. Why? How, how could you possibly say, I love your commandments. I love your statutes. I love your rules. Well, the David understood because this is a revelation of your character. And when I read, when you say, don't do this and do this, and I, I, I do it in faith against my own will, and I find joy in that, I find contentment in that, that I didn't think was on the other side of that obedience. I'm like, man, I love this. God cares for me. God cares for you. But I'm saying the more you're trying to do that and love his law and understand it and see his character reflected, you will see more sin in your own heart. Like Marty and I talk about this all the time. Like I feel like the longer I walk with God, I feel like a more sinful person. I don't think that's objectively true, but I sense that. And I want to live a life of confession. Of God, I see this attitude. I see this impatience. I see this ungraciousness. I see this pride. I see all these things and I want to bring them to you and magnify this part of your character that is patient and merciful and forgiving and reconciling. So live a life of confession. And then finally, hope in and live out the gospel. See, the gospel, paraphrasing Tim Keller, he said something like this. He said, uh, the gospel is that you were so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, but you're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. And I want us to understand this about Christianity, the same God who made the rules that you don't like, the same God who said, by its very nature, breaking the rules, living life apart from me, leads to spiritual death. Hear this part. That same God became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and put himself on the hook for our sin. Like, yes, that's the way the world works. When we break the law, we earn death. The wages of sin is death. But the same God who said that came to this earth and said, put their sin on me. Let me take it. Why did Jesus die? It wasn't for his own sins. The Bible says he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's a part of our moral truth. We don't have Christianity apart from that gospel truth. That yes, there's right. Yes, there's wrong. Yes, we've all done the wrong and failed to do the right as we confessed earlier in this same service. But hope in the gospel. Because Christianity is not just this moral code and this moral obligation. It's like God's right. Everything else that disagrees with him is wrong. I believe that. But the same God who says that, and that's the way life actually works, gave his life for you. Now live a life that's worthy of this gospel. Joyfully submit to his law. Love his commands because they're revealing his character to you. And we do this obedience not out of a legalistic, moralistic, I want to prove to everyone else what an awesome and amazing and godly person I am. Forget that. Live that life out of gratitude for the God who lived and died for you, for the God who designed you in such a way that with the right parameters and the right restrictions, you are ultimately free. I don't remember who said this. Augustine or someone like that just said, Love God and then do what you want. That's oversimplistic, okay? But if you truly loved God, you could do anything you wanted because your desires and your, your morals, your ethics would be shaped by the character of God. And we want, family, we want our lives to be a prophetic witness to the truth and the beauty, not only of the gospel, but of the law of God. This is our sense of morals. God is the foundation. God tells us right and wrong. We live to please him because he gave himself for us. Let's pray.